Well, today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 17. We're going to be reading in the ESV, and we encourage you, uh, friends, to find the scripture uh, in a pew Bible or if you brought your own Bible or Bible app. Uh, it will be projected behind me, but we are going to reference it frequently. We're going to uh, go through basically verse by verse uh, for the most part. Uh, and um, unlike we have in the past, uh, I'm going to be reading the scripture. You can stay seated and just uh, read along quietly um, from where you are. So again, it's Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, friends, we are continuing in our series, The Story of Jesus, where we are going through in its entirety the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we are starting... uh, Mark chapter 2, but to just kind of get us caught up, uh, if maybe you might have missed uh, part of the sermon series, uh, previously on the story of Jesus. I've been saying this actually past couple weeks, but one of the points that we've been making, and I think that uh, the Gospel of Mark makes, is that Jesus came to overthrow kingdoms. He came as the Messiah, the promised king of Israel. And that we we made this point that uh, oftentimes in America, I think that we like to hear uh, the gospel as in Jesus came to make us comfortable. Jesus came to serve our needs and to give us what we want. And that is simply not the case. Um, that for Jesus to come as a king and for Jesus to overthrow a, a kingdom means that um, that means that we have to abdicate our thrones. There are, there are implications to that. But also one of the great things that we've seen in the past couple of weeks is Jesus and who he is coming uh, to reach 
that we've seen people who have been possessed by demons. You know, maybe those are people that have mental illness. We have people uh, who are sick. And so much of the Gospels, we see so many healings, so much of Jesus driving out demons and unclean spirits. And we see this, this unmistakable part of Jesus' ministry, um, the heart of his ministry, really, is to come and make all the wrong things right, to come and rule and reign over the things that are broken in this world. And so maybe sin has been reigning, evil has been reigning, um, you know, sickness has been reigning. And so if Jesus is coming as king, those things no longer can reign. Those things uh, must give up their power in, in the, the presence of Jesus, right? So he drives them out. And so uh, maybe there are unclean spirits in our lives, spirits of depression or loneliness, spirits of anxiety, spirits of fear, that Jesus is coming to drive those out as well. Jesus is coming to restore all broken things, to heal all the ways that we are sick. And that is wonderful good news, right? And that brings us uh, to the story today, which, by the way, uh, we are going to see another uh, healing, but I I want us to see that um, the healings are going to, uh, especially when there are specific healings that are named in the scriptures, um, I I, want to just encourage you not to just gloss them over or just lump them all together like, oh, yeah, 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 we've seen this before. But clearly there are times where it just tells us Jesus healed a bunch of people, right? Like, that's it. Like, oh, okay, cool. He healed a bunch of people. But there are other times where they tell us specifically who he healed, what happened there. And I think that in those cases, we need to slow down and see what are the differences? Why are these things, uh, uh, you know, brought out? And today's message is called with. And so what we are going to see is Jesus has come to be with us. And that word with, uh, it's a little word, a little funny little, you know, four-letter word, but it's a wonderful word. It can mean different things, though. I mean, that's the way the English language is so often, right? And I think the two most common usages, I, I want to sort of uh, draw out with T-shirts, right? So uh, one sense of the word with means that uh, you are on someone's side. It's kind of a metaphorical with, right? Like maybe you've seen uh, these T-shirts or you saw like um, the, the campaign posters, I'm with her, right? This was re- referring to people who supported Hillary Clinton, Right? What does it mean if somebody had a, a t-shirt that says, I'm with her? It doesn't mean that Hillary Rodham Clinton was literally with them, right? They weren't hanging out, right? They, they weren't hitting the clubs or, you know, getting coffee together, right? It means that they are on her side, right? They support the things that she supports and they're going to vote for her, right? They're going to give her a voter of confidence. And so there is that sense of, you know, being on someone's side, being for them. Right? But there's another sense uh, that is shown by another t-shirt. Very similar, but instead, I'm with stupid. Right? Now, if you're saying, I'm with stupid, that's not really kind of promoting that person. That's not really being on their side, right? Like, you're putting them down. You know, you're calling them names, right? Uh, but you are saying, I am physically with you. You are by my side, Right? And in both senses of the word with, I want to argue, that's what Jesus has come to do. That's what Jesus' ministry is all about. And it is radical to say that Jesus is both on our side and he is also with us. His presence is here, especially because Jesus is the Messiah. He's a king, right? 
and Jesus is the Son of God. And so those implications definitely have ripples. And they, they, they were, it was very mind-boggling for uh, people to, to, to wrap their heads around this. In many ways, it caused the religious leaders to really uh, not be on Jesus' side, to not want to be with Jesus because of who Jesus said he wanted to be with. And so let's take a look at the, the passage. Um, so we see that he returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was at home. So it seems that Jesus, in his ministry, as he went to different towns, that he had a home here in Capernaum. So he's at his home, and this is important because you'll see uh, in a moment, there were many were gathered together, and there was no more room, not even at the door. And so Jesus had been healing, and he had been preaching, and his fame, his reputation had been spreading. And so there's a bunch of people who are gathered there at his, his house. So many people that there's no room. You can't get inside. Uh, you, can't, you can't even fit through the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So there seems to be a group of people who are trying to bring a paralytic in, right? And that they can't get in. So when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, this is why I pointed out the fact that this is Jesus' home, right? So... Let's get this straight. The people, in order to get the paralytic to Jesus, they committed vandalism to Jesus' home, right? They removed the roof. Usually when you see this, um, when you see pictures of this, it's kind of like a thatch roof type thing, and, and it seems like they just take off a portion of it. I don't know. Did they just somehow find a way to just remove the whole thing? You know, like, like was this clean? Or did they do damage, serious damage, to Jesus' house, because I don't know about you, but one of the most important things about a house is a roof, right? That's why you have a house, and you don't just sleep in a field, right? Uh, the roof is very important, and they seem to have removed it. And so, you know, the, 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 it's a kind of funny story, but it's a story that I, I have had more resonance with uh, when I was doing medical missions. So in 2005, our church uh, sent a team to Uganda, and we did some medical missions there. Uh, we were supposed to have this whole team of doctor, but doctors, but only three could come. And uh, for whatever reason, I, I don't know what happened, but uh, somehow uh, it was broadcast that a medical team was coming uh, in the countryside in Uganda, and everybody in the whole area heard. So when we showed up to this small medical clinic, what we thought was going to be a small medical clinic, there were about 1,000 people waiting for us. It was crazy, and only three doctors, right? And so we were serving literally hundreds of people. And it went well into the night, and it, we just got to the point where we were running out of medicine. We had more clinics to run. It was the first day, and uh, the doctors were exhausted. I mean, they, they couldn't see straight anymore. And we had to close up shop. And as we were doing that, you could see people pressed up on the window, and they were pounding. And they were just, you know, like, let us in, let us in. And it was heartbreaking. And I understand this a little bit of what's going on here. These people are desperate to get this man in. You know, this man is desperate to be near Jesus. And he can't get in. 
right? And, and I, I kind of understand that desperation, right? That they want to very extreme measures to remove part of Jesus' roof on his own home, to, to lower him in. You know, I mean, just the implications of like, okay, if you want Jesus to do you a favor, to do you a solid, you probably wouldn't wreck his home. But yet they did it. That's how desperate they were, right? And so there's kind of a funny thing about this passage too, other than just, you know, a group of people lowering a man in through a roof. But it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Did you catch that? Whose faith did he see? Was it the paralytics? Um, Eugene Sho, who's a pastor in Seattle, he has this wonderful book uh, called Overrated. And he talks about this passage there. And Pastor Cho's uh, uh, take on this is that Jesus is not just seeing the faith of the paralytic. We don't really know who there is if the paralytic is included in that, but it is very clear. He is not just seeing the faith of the, the man who needs to be healed, but the faith of the people who are so bold as to remove the roof and lower him in. Right? We don't know if they're his friends. Most, most of the time when I hear this, this uh, story preached, um, they usually say the man's friends. Just because you're like, who would do that? Right? Who, who would go to that length? Like, you got to have to like this guy to do that. Like, they're obviously his friends, but we don't know that. Maybe this man like, like paid them, or maybe he was so annoying that they finally agreed to it. Maybe there were just a bunch of people who got caught up in the moment. They're like, yeah, let's see if we can do it. But for what, regardless, it does seem that in many ways, faith for Jesus and for these people was not the individualistic thing that it is for us. It was a communal thing. And that even the faith of other people in our community can be healing to us. And so I, I think that is a longer message, but I think that is a very interesting point. And maybe it's just something to chew on. You know, maybe the ways that we can... Uh, intervene on other people's behalf, where we can uh, be with other people, that could be a source of healing for them, even though the healing is ultimately coming from God, right? But here we see, um, uh, again, another funny thing is, now, remember, this man is paralyzed, right? He can't walk. And they go to this extreme lengths to lower this man in. And what does Jesus do? What have we seen Jesus do up until this point for the most part? When he sees a sick person, what does he do? He heals them physically, right? But Jesus does not do that, right? Can you just imagine? You're the paralytic, right? And maybe you had to like convince these guys. They're like, oh, no, man. Like, I, I know you're desperate and all, but that's just crazy. We're going to wreck this man's roof and lower you in. How is that even possible? How heavy are you? Do we, do we have bed sheets here? Like, like what, what are we going to... Like, they had to go home and get them. And they had to go to these extreme lengths. And they're removing the roof. And, you know, as they're removing the roof, Jesus is looking up. And the disciples are looking up. And they're like, ha, 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 sorry. And they, they lower the man in. The man's like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh, it's happening. And finally, thunk, And they, the man looks up at Jesus. Jesus looks at him. And he's like, oh, my gosh, is Jesus going to kill me? You know, Jesus going to be mad? And Jesus looks at him. He's like, son... And he's like, he's going to heal me? Your sins are forgiven. Is that what he wanted? Is that what he was looking for? Why doesn't Jesus just outright just heal the dude? 
Now, friends, it's interesting. I, I don't know the exact answer to this, but what I do know is that this man was desperate to be with Jesus, to be near him, right? That's what this whole story is about, is this man trying to get near Jesus. It doesn't tell us. I mean, it's just implied, right? Because the man was paralyzed. So we think that maybe he wanted to get healed, right? I mean, that's a fair assumption, but we don't know that. All we know is that he desperately wanted to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And it seems that Jesus understands that the way that he wants to be with his people is not just to heal the physical things that might separate them. Because if he wanted to be with Jesus, what would he have to do to be with Jesus, to follow Jesus? What would he have to do? He'd have to walk, right? Jesus did lots of walking. He was an itinerant preacher, went from town to town. The man would need to walk, right? And so physically, for him to be with Jesus, he would need to be healed of his paralysis so he could get up and walk with Jesus. But there was something else perhaps separating him, his sin, right? And so here we see then uh, the Pharisees, uh, we we see the, the, the scribes who are the lawyers, right? These are the people who know the law in and out. And they're the religious authorities. They're oftentimes seen as the bad guys in Scripture, but they would not have been seen this way by the people of their time. They were the most respected people. You know, like pastors, but maybe even another level. Like, they were so well-respected. And these people are like, oh my gosh, what are you talking about? You're going to heal? You're going to say you're going to forgive this man? This is blasphemy. Who are you to do this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so they're thinking this in their hearts, and Jesus knew what they were thinking, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves. He said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And that's exactly what the man did. He rose he, he picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We see a, a word there that is often repeated in the Gospel of Mark. We've already seen it a few times in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to commit sin, to, to uh, uh, forgive sins. Uh, authority. What is Authority. What kind of word is that, friends? Authority, friends, is a kingdom word. You see that um, that there are people, when Jesus first appears on the public scene, they're like, this is a new teaching. It's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He is teaching with authority. Later, much later in in Mark, you're going to see that uh, the the teachers of the law are going to question Jesus. And they're going to say, on what authority do you teach these things? On what authority do you heal people? And that is the question. Where is his authority? Right? And authority is a kingdom word. It is about ruling. It is about reigning. It is about power. And so for Jesus to speak for God, to say that, you know what? The things that separate you, because that's what sin is, right? It's the things that separate us from God. Those things 
are remitted. Those things are forgiven. Those things are wiped away. The things that separate you from God are no more. That for the Pharisees, they're like, okay, you were healing and all, that's cool. But now you've gone too far. And Jesus says, well, hey, which one is easier? To just say it? To just speak those words or to actually heal him? And so here we see that Jesus is showing that for him to heal a person, that his kingdom work is about physical healing, but it's also about spiritual healing. It is also about soul healing. It is about closing that rift that exists between us and God. That he knew that this paralytic didn't just need a physical healing. He needed more, right? And, and friends, uh, uh, we could go on on that, but I want to move on to the next story because it's related. Remember, this happens right afterwards. So Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, friends, again, we tend to uh, uh, cast the, the Pharisees as the bad guys here. But a, a few things that I think we need to understand for context is who was Jesus eating with? So we, we have tax collectors who were seen as, um, they, they were probably amongst the most despicable people. Um, they, they were seen as traitors uh, to the Jewish people. Um, they were seen as cheats because oftentimes they wouldn't just take the money and give it to the Romans, but they would keep some for themselves. So a tax collector was not a really dignified person. They were usually very rich because they stole so much money, but they were very much looked down upon. And then we see sinners. It doesn't tell us who sinner is, but fill in the blank. Look at the Pharisees and just the disdain they have. Oh, what is Jesus doing? He's eating with these tax collectors and sinners. What I know about uh, Jesus is that some of the people he hung out with were prostitutes. What is a prostitute? Somebody who has sex for money, a streetwalker, a hooker. Maybe there's some hookers there. Maybe there's some, you know, the equivalent of drug addicts. There were lepers there. There were whoever it is in our society that we would not want at our table. That's exactly who Jesus was at table with. He went to eat with them. Now, friends, uh, what is the mental picture that comes up when you think about Jesus eating with someone? You know, maybe you think of like a fine dining experience. They go to a, a, a restaurant and, you know, there's like music playing. You know, they, they have silverware. You know, they're eating and their steak. Jesus, thank you for eating with us today. This steak is very good. How is your meal? Oh, it is fine. Thank you. Levi, son of Alphaeus. That's not what's going on, friends. He's eating in Levi's house. And I want to show you what it would have looked like. Remember, it says he was reclining at table. You know, they're not sitting at a, a high table with chairs. They're leaning close to each other. Do you guys remember uh, the story of the uh, Last Supper as recorded in John? That It tells us that Jesus was actually... Um, leaning upon the breast of someone, or someone was leaning upon his breast. 
that oftentimes when you would eat with people, if you're at a table, especially we're told that there's like a bunch of people there. There's a bunch of sinners and tax collectors, right? So likely it would have been even more intimate than this. There might have been some people, there might have been like a tax collector or a prostitute right up on Jesus, touching him. And Jesus would have been touching them. Can you start to see why this was so scandalous for the Pharisees? They're like, oh, Jesus, how can you eat with them? And knowing that it was such an intimate thing, friends, that to eat with someone uh, in that society, it's similar to what eating with someone in our society is. But we can treat that as such a casual thing sometimes. But it was a very intimate thing that would have been undeniable for the Pharisees. They had no other way to interpret this than Jesus is extending fellowship and friendship to tax collectors, prostitutes, drug addicts, to the dregs of society, to people who are unclean, people who have broken the law, people who are cursed by God. And he is right up there with them. He is literally with them. In every sense of that word, with Right? He is extending friendship. He is laughing and eating. And you guys remember when uh, at the Last Supper, when it says, uh, you know, the, the, the disciples are asking Jesus, who's going to betray you? And he says, he who dips the bread in the dish with me. Right? And I've seen movies where this is portrayed. And it's very dramatic that, that Judas uh, isn't paying attention. And Judas just, he just casually dips his bread in. And Jesus looks at Judas at the same time. And people are like, oh, right? That's not what was going on because they were shocked when Judas betrayed them. What was going on is that when you would eat, you'd have a gigantic dish and everybody would dip their bread into the same dish, right? You ever have someone eat off your plate or you eat off of someone else's plate? Who do you usually do that with? Do you do that with a stranger? Maybe you just met someone off the street like, hey, can I eat your food? Oh, can I eat that sandwich? They just ate that sandwich. There's bite marks. And they're like, oh, have some. Or they're eating soup. Hey, have some. Would you do that with a stranger? Friends, it is an extremely intimate thing, right? He is dipping bread, swapping saliva with these people, right? The dregs of society. It is shocking. And Jesus is He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And so his answer to the the scribes and the Pharisees who are so shocked, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a lot of implications here. One is that, friends, sometimes we think that there's an either-or proposition. Either you are completely against sin And you have to isolate yourself from sinners. That's the way sometimes Christians are in this world. You know, they they label people. Oh, you're a sinner. Oh, see, that person's a homosexual. That that, that person believes in abortion. That that person's on the other side of the aisle. They're wrong. And, And they think that the sin that that person has separates them from them. But then there's other people who think that if we say that we're going to be with these people, if we're going to be in fellowship with them, that we're okay with everything that people do, that we're condoning it, that there's nothing wrong with it, 
right? And so sometimes you see Christians that, that they don't want to be seen in those scenes. You know, um, I, I know that some people, um, you know, maybe Christians, like they don't want to be seen like at a club or at a bar or something like that. Because maybe the implication is that you're condoning that behavior by being there. But here you see Jesus, and two things are going on. One is that he's there having fellowship, breaking bread with these so-called sinners and, and uh, tax collectors. But then in the same breath, he's saying, those who are well have no need of a phys- physician, but those who are sick. Now, friends, can you just imagine you're there and you're dipping your bread in with Jesus and you're hearing him say this, like, Jesus, you calling us sick? Huh? You judging us, Jesus? How dare you? But Jesus was, of course, saying like, hey, I'm here with you, right? I'm not drawing away from you. But make no mistake, you need healing, right? Jesus did come to heal. You know, there's another story with a tax collector in a different gospel uh, where Jesus calls um, the tax collector and he comes out of the tree and the man gives away uh, all the, the, the money that he's earned dishonestly. And he agrees to pay it all back. And before the man does that, Jesus extends the hand of fellowship. And so this is Jesus' move always, is he's always extending the hand of fellowship before he demands holiness. You guys see that? Jesus extends friendship and fellowship before he demands holiness. How often do you see Christians in this world do the exact opposite? We demand holiness. We demand perfection. Hey, clean up your act before you come into the church. If you are clean, if you are cleaned up, then we will accept you. Then we'll talk. If you get your politics straight, if you uh, don't do these sins that we have, by the way, earmarked as more important sins than the sins that we're committing because they're not really the sins we deal with, that's a different story, right? But if you agree with us, then we will extend the hand of fellowship. That's not Jesus' move. Jesus is always, I am with you. Even when people are in their sin, there are no conditions here. But while he was with them, he knows that they will start to be healed. What is it that heals people, friends? Does Jesus have some kind of special secret? You know, some Mr. Miyagi thing, some magic, right? Does Jesus have just magical pixie dust? Friends, I think that what is really healing people is the spirit, the presence of God. That the healing is actually Jesus himself. It's not just his power. It's not just his blessing. It's not an external thing. It is the actual presence of God. And so when Jesus touches someone, when he is in fellowship with them, they start to heal. And I think that that is the case with um, these people. Jesus is saying, hey, look, I have come to heal. And that is why I'm here with these people. And so, friends, um, another thing he says is, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, it's kind of ironic a little bit, because the people that perhaps Jesus was the harshest against, the people who Jesus would really condemn, at least their actions he would condemn, were the Pharisees and the religious leaders, right? Why? Why was he the harshest against them? 
because they couldn't see that they were sick. They couldn't acknowledge that. They thought of themselves as being so much better than these people. They stood in judgment of them. And so Jesus is saying, in a way, if you, are, if you think you are well, you have no room for me. Friends, this goes back to the whole Jesus has come to overthrow kingdoms, right? What does it mean to say, I am well? I have my entire kingdom in order. It means I'm still in charge. I'm in control of everything. By my goodness, by my will, by my uh, uh, self-efforts, I've been able to organize my life. Jesus, no need. Keep on walking, man. I got this, right? But the sick, the people whose lives are broken, are able to recognize, Jesus, you know what? You got to take over here. I I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have enough willpower. I'm not able to get my house in order. I'm going to need you to come and rule and reign and make these things right in a way that I cannot. So friends, what about for us? Who are we in this story? Are we the Pharisees who maybe think that we have our lives in order? Or maybe at times we're the tax collectors. We're the prostitutes. We're the people who've kind of broken our lives. And friends, I gotta tell you that more often than not, um, I find myself, well, to be honest, playing both sides of the aisle. At times I'm the Pharisee, you know, and usually it's on Sundays when I'm the Pharisee, coming to church, my life all cleaned up. Like, oh, hey, guys, I'm Pastor Steve. I got my life in order. I don't say that outright. But there isn't always that sense of brokenness. Now, friends, you know, I, I hope you know um, that, that I am somebody who tries to be very transparent about my life because I've wrecked my life. And I am not able to get my life in order by myself. Um, it's a very frustrating thing. It's very, very frustrating. Um, and I find that for me, uh, one of the most difficult things is when I make a mistake, when I do something that is contrary to the story I want to believe about myself, um, it's very dissonant. You know what that word dissonance means? Um, it is the difference between the way you see yourself and the way that maybe sometimes you actually are. Right? It creates a lot of uh, psychological chaos, right? So for instance, let's say you think about yourself as being a good person. Like, oh, you know, I'm a good and honest person. But you cheat on your taxes or something like that. You know, you just make this little fudge, you know, you think it's not that big a deal. Maybe there's a test and you just kind of peek over at one of the answers. You really want to get a good grade. You don't feel prepared and you just happen to drop your pencil. And you just happen to see the smartest kid in your class. You see the answer for number 11, which you couldn't figure out with C. What do you do? <laughs> so you put down C. You're like, I didn't mean to do it, right? What do you do with that? I'm an honest person. I'm not somebody who would cheat. I'm not somebody who would do that, but you just cheated. What do you do with that, friends? What do you do with that dissonance? And for many of us, we have to find ways to, it's very disturbing that we have to find ways to uh, uh, sort of uh, dispel that discomfort. For the Pharisees, the way they do that is by being very judgmental of other people, right? They start blaming and putting down other people because psychologically what they can do is say, well, 
I may have cheated on my taxes, but I'm not as bad as a tax collector. I didn't sell out my people. I'm not there selling my body on the street. I'm not as bad as them. So therefore, I can still see myself as a good person. Do you see how this works, friends? Right? But what if you're just faced with the reality, I'm not as good as I think I am. What do you do with that? What does that do to us? Or what if, friends, because this is really what's at stake, what if your belonging is at stake when you make a mistake like that? I don't know. Maybe people at your church find out that you cheated on your taxes. And they start to treat you differently. They're like, hey, can't come to Bible study anymore. You can't come to small group. You cheat on your taxes? You know? You could go to jail for that. We can't have you around. It's bad energy, right? What, what happens when you make a mistake and in your heart and your soul, you think, you know what? People aren't going to love me anymore. People aren't going to accept me. If that has ever happened to you, I think you know how a tax collector feels. I think you know how the sinners feel. These are the people who are exposed and vulnerable. Pharisees, man, they hide it well. They got the robes on. They got the impressive beards, right? They, they've got the, the Torah written on, on their tassels, right? They've got the, the little uh, uh, things with, with the scripture on it, uh, folded up on their clothes, you know, exactly the way the law says they're supposed to. They hide it so well. They look so good. They quote scripture. They, they, they just have their lives in order. But Jesus sees right through them. He says, amen, maybe part of the reason why you're so hard on these people is because you know secretly you're not well either. That in your psyche, you feel like you need to put down these people in order for you to feel like you're still a righteous person. But I've come for those who are sick. And I've come to heal them. And I've come to be with them. Friends, for me, when I make mistakes, and I try to be a very honest person, but, you know, if, if I'm on the highway and, you know, maybe I'm in a hurry or maybe I cut someone off or maybe somebody does something to me and in a fit of rage, you know, I give them the middle finger. I'm not going to do it. You, you can imagine what that looks like. Maybe I cuss. I use a four-letter word. Very dissonant, isn't it? As a pastor... It's very dissonant. And for me, I'm like, gosh, what did I do? You know, what, what kind of person is Pastor Steve? <laughs> you know, that's part of my identity as a pastor. You know, what if I make a mistake? What, what if I mess up? You know, what do I do with all of that? And friends, what, what we are pointing at is something, it's a very common, it is one of the most primitive human experiences, something that we all experience. It's called shame. Do you know what shame is? Shame is the fear that something about you is wrong. It's so wrong that it's going to cause people not to want to be with you. Right? Some people might have heard me say this before, but they've done all this research and people talk about this experience as being so painful for people. Something that people want to hide and not talk about because the stakes are so high. The most important thing for us when you're a kid, when you're a baby, it's not food, water, and shelter. Because 
When you're a baby, you can't get that. I've never seen a newborn go out and get their own bottle. I've never seen a newborn change their own diaper. I've never seen a newborn buy a house. You never see that, right? Who does all that for them? Their caregiver, the mother, the father, right? So what does a baby do? The only thing a baby do is look cute and cry. That's all they do, right? They, they look cute and cry. And what does that do? That causes somebody to come to them. Oh, oh, you need something? What do you need? You're hungry? Okay, I'll feed you. And they're like, sweet, right? What a newborn baby needs, what all of us need, is love, connection, belonging. And here we have people in this story who don't have that. I mean, you got to think that the tax collectors, they have their own tax collector club, right? They're not accepted by mainstream society, but they know it. They walk down the street, and they see people staring at them. They see people cursing under their breath. Oh, you miserable tax collector. How dare you? You're a disgrace. You, you think the, the, the prostitutes show up at church? You think they show up to small group? Do you think they show up with everyone else and, and you know, try to wear their Sunday best? You, you don't think they see the, the women in the, the corner of the synagogues whispering about them? Shh, I know where she was on Friday night. I know what she was doing. Right? And for a lot of us, what do we do then in that case? Do you think they keep showing up for that kind of disgrace, for that kind of shame? No, they hide. The paralytic, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, maybe they have given up in thinking that someone like Jesus who comes and there's this hope, maybe he is the Messiah. And he has come not to just save individual people, to make a kingdom. Right? A new home for people. A new sense of belonging. Who's going to be in that kingdom? And I just imagine those, those, those tax collectors and those prostitutes are thinking, well, that's not me. I mean, clearly, I'm not going to be in there. And you see Jesus go up to the tax collector and say, follow me. Hey, you know what? As a matter of fact, call your friends. Let's have dinner tonight. For real, Jesus? Yeah, bring them all. Bring them all. Like, you want it to be crowded? You, you want to be up against some prostitutes and tax collectors? You want to be touching them? Dipping your bread with them? Absolutely. Absolutely. I have come to be with you. Friends, my prayer used to be this. Every day I used to pray the same prayer. And it's changed a little bit. I don't think this is necessarily a bad prayer, but I think I've gotten the order wrong. I used to pray every single day, Jesus, help me be a better man than I was yesterday. Help me to be a better man than I was yesterday. You know, the implication is, I'm not that good of a father, or I can be better. I'm not that great of a husband. As a pastor, but Jesus, help me to be better. And maybe some of you guys feel that way. Maybe some of you, you approach your quiet times that way or the times that you spend with God or coming to church. Like, I need to be a better person. I need to do more. I need to shape up my life. And friends, you know, for me, what that does oftentimes is it creates distance between me and God. Because the implication is that I need to do something to get at God's level. And by the way, friends, You know, how are these two related? These stories of Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners and Jesus forgiving the paralytic. Before he even physically heals them, he he forgives him. 
Why is that so important? That, friends, the forgiveness, what it is about, it is there so that we can be with Jesus. I wonder, friends, I'm going to say something that I've had to think about a lot. I've been thinking about this a lot this week. I was having a quiet time, um, and this thought occurred to me. And so I'm going to throw this out there, and, and, and let's see what you think. The thought that I had was, do I sometimes use God's forgiveness as a way to not be with God? Hey, think about that for a second. I know it sounds kind of weird on the surface, but it, I'm going to say it again. Do I ever use forgiveness as a way to not be with God? Right? Like, how does God's forgiveness work for you? Like, I don't know. Maybe you looked at some porn. Maybe you did something naughty. You, know, you did something you knew you weren't supposed to. You lost your temper. You did something very unchristian, very unlike you, and you feel bad. Just, oh, I feel so bad. I feel so dirty we got to find a way to diffuse that. So what do we do? We say, God, forgive me. Now I feel better. Ah, now I can carry on my day, right? But this is the thing. Do I carry on my day then without Jesus, without God? Because I got what I wanted. I got my little fix, the forgiveness fix. You know, just, ah, I feel better. Now I can just go on and do whatever I want until I feel bad again. Or is forgiveness maybe the way it was in, in, in the Bible here, in the story, in the gospel, where forgiveness is about being with Jesus. I forgive you so you can be with me, so that you're not separated from me. I have already made the first move. I've invited myself over to come eat with you. I, I've already made that move. I've already extended the, the, the friendship before you've even done a- anything, before you've cleaned up your life. And so now for me, friends, my prayer every day is, Jesus, I want to be with you. More so than Jesus, help me to be a better man. Now, I still want to be a better man. And I do believe that God wants me to be a better man. That's a part of the healing. But when is that going to come? Does that come first Jesus, I want to be a better man, and then I can be with you? Or Jesus, I want to be with you, and through being with you, by sharing your life, then I start to become a better person. Friends, I know um, I talk a lot about spending time with God. And for a lot of us, this can be very anxiety-producing. You know, a lot of people, they feel really bad. They feel like they don't measure up, like, like, you know, maybe you ask somebody in a small group, hey, did you have a quiet time? And people just hang their heads in shame. I didn't have my quiet time this week. I was bad. You know, that's kind of the implication for a lot of us. But friends, when did it become that? Instead of a joyful thing, you know what? God wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. Whether you're having a great week or not, whether you have your life exactly the way it's supposed to be or not, if you're a nervous wreck, if you're full of stress, if you're depressed, if you're an addict, if you are out partying and getting drunk out of your mind on a Friday night, if you are struggling with sin and anger, if you're the most unforgiving person on earth, no matter who you are, Jesus is saying undeniably, I want to be with you. And Jesus, he goes the extra mile. I mean, talk about going the extra mile. He dies for the sinners, for the mockers. Remember Jesus' dying words 
there are people still making fun of Jesus. <laughs> he saved all these other people. He can't save himself. They're thinking, oh, we're so righteous. We're so clean. We have our lives together. Look at Jesus. He's the one who's dying a sinner's death. He's the one dying as a dirty criminal. And Jesus is looking at them, and he's still loving them. And he's still trying to reconcile them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Did the Pharisees clean up their lives? Were they repentant? No. But Jesus still forgives them. Friends, I wonder how often in our lives that we really think about this spiritual life, the spiritual life as Jesus being with you always. That's where the healing's going to come from. You know? And yes, I think there are ways where, um, like, like, I think I've even preached this message before, and unintentionally, I think it, it maybe served the wrong purpose. I think I've said, like, can you imagine that you're, like, committing the worst sin? Like, like the really kind of, like, dirty, horrible sin that you just don't want anyone to know about, right? Like, it's your worst nightmare that somebody walks in while you're doing this. Can you imagine you're doing that and then Jesus walks in the door, right? And I think for some people, this creates a lot of shame. They're like, oh my gosh, Jesus is always here. Jesus is always judging me, right? But friends, what would it mean if you knew Jesus was with you? He's on your side. Even when you are at your most shameful. Friends, that's what I want in life more and more. Because I think that life gets better. I think we heal. I think a lot of things start to make sense. I think that we're not going to have the room and capacity to have as much fear, to have as much stress, to have as much anxiety if we simply know that God is here. This is why I keep telling folks, I I, I encourage you to spend some time in quiet and silence. Doing what? Cleaning up your life? proving to God that you're so good that you can be quiet for 30 minutes? It's not about that. You come with all your baggage. You come exactly as you are, as messed up as you are, and you let Jesus be with you. That's what that time is about. That's what quiet times are about. It's a reminder that Jesus is with you. Because as I'm rushing around, as I'm keeping myself busy, as I'm running, because maybe I'm running from myself, maybe I'm running from my shame, maybe I'm running from that dissonance of knowing that I'm not always that person that I think I am. I'm running from that because it's really disturbing. And so the moment that I sit down and I really just be still, maybe that's going to come out of me. I'm going to know I'm not as good as I think I am. But in that moment, we need to be reminded. And I encourage you, you know, if you can't do this on your own, you know, just keep repeating, Jesus died for me. Jesus loves me. Listen to a gospel song. Listen to Scandal of Grace. Put that on repeat. I'm lost without you, but it is a scandal of grace that you died for my sake so that I can be like you and with you. Just listen to that over and over. If that's what it takes just for us to be reminded, this God is with us. He's on your side and he's here with you and he always wants to be with you. Amen? Amen.